I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome to this episode. My guest is Adelaide Campbell. I saw Adelaine's profile and I thought I have to have her on the show. I want to know everything about Cachaça spirits. And I thought that she was from Brazil. To my surprise, she's a former actuary born and raised in Boston. In the middle of the pandemic, Adelaine and her husband decided to move to Miami. And after a while in Miami, she was not happy with what she was doing and resolved to take a big risk by quitting a stable and well-paid job and launch Cachaça Spirits, her own brand of Brazil's favorite spirit. Conversing with Adelaine made me feel that it was already summer here. I wanted to have people over because we love to have friends over. I realized that some cultures don't do the same. For example, in Spain, when you want to meet with your friends, you usually go to the bar. You may not even know your friend's house. But in Canada, in the U.S., and where I grew up in Venezuela, people love to have friends over for dinners, lunches. And of course, with cachaça, you want to have caipirinhas. So let's enjoy Adelaine's story. Welcome, Adelaide, to the show. I am super excited that you're here. Thank you so much, Danielle. It's lovely to be here with you. Yes, and you have a story to share. Why do you have a story to share? My story is all about going from one very established and very secure career into being a wine and spirits, craft spirits entrepreneur and launching my company here in Miami. Great. Adeline, when does the story start? I think my story really starts when I was very young. I've always had this entrepreneurial desire, a very strong desire to always be looking for the cool what's next thing that I can be doing. However, growing up, I needed a lot of stability and parents always pointed me towards the the stable and the sure career path. And that ended up with me being an actuary. And, and for anybody who doesn't know what an actuary is, I usually say people are generally familiar with accountants. And I say that actuaries are a less sexy version of accountants. If accountants look backwards at the financials, reconcile everything and figure out what happened with a company's finances, actuaries look forward and they apply what they call actuarial judgment based off of what they see in the market, their own experience in the industry to forecast what's going to happen. So they tend to be in insurance companies, reinsurance companies, and they're very kind of dependable, stalwart, routine people, very smart, a lot of finance and math background. So that's how I ended up in this career as an actuary, where I was working for a health insurance company in Boston, making wonderful money. I always found myself restless. Like I didn't fit in. I was a little bit too much of a big personality. You know, the the kind of personalities that I was working with uh, and my coworkers. And doing that, and I learned a lot about insurance and finance and fiscal responsibility. But I, I also knew that I had this desire to do something bigger. From that career as an actuary, I moved into startups and technology 
And I was still kind of in that world of, of stability and everything, but a little bit more risk-taking because these were startups, they had funding, they weren't big, stable insurance companies. The big impetus that really made me make the change was, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, was COVID. At the time in March of 2020, I was living in Boston with my then partner, now husband. We made the pull the ripcord decision to move from Boston to Miami, Florida, just because we were craving a change. And it felt like, I think like everybody did, they took a pause at that point. I'm in Miami now. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I want to know, how was that decision? You are obviously a very analytic person. How was that decision? It really was. I think a lot of people took that moment to take pause. We all ended up locked in our houses. And I think we all did a lot of soul searching, a lot of sourdough bed baking. <laughs> and as part of that, we really looked at our lives and we assessed, we've always wanted to, to consider maybe a move to Miami in the future. But Business-wise, my career was in Boston. His company was in Boston. From a, an analytical and planning stage, it was, was a lot of pieces that would be needed to put into place to make that move. And what COVID did is it removed all of those constraints. It was an opportunity where everyone was working out of their house. Both he and I could make that decision to change our location. And we did. I think it was within two months of, of March. We were down here in May of 2020. We also kind of knew that if it didn't work out long term, we could always move back. But we wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. I was working remotely in my job. His company was remote of his company, but he ended up opening up an office down here, offering it to his employees and they moved down. I stayed working remote. Then it was about a year, maybe nine months of being down here in Miami. I know that, that you've, you've spent some time in Miami, so you're familiar with the energy and the culture and the passion of the people down here. And I think it awoke something in me. I wanted more from my career. And I, I didn't know where I wanted to start with that exploration, but I knew that I needed to make a change. What I like to say is there are really four essential components to knowing that you're wanting to become an entrepreneur. The first one of those is that it's entrepreneurial desire. And it's that intrinsic sense of saying, hey, that's cool. What else could we do? And I found that down here in Miami, you just get a lot of that hey, cool, let's take that next step. Let's find a new restaurant. Let's try a new cuisine. Let's try a new adventure, go scuba diving. You, Miami gave me the permission to go exploring and broaden my horizons. So with, with that entrepreneurial desire that had kind of always lived in me, the next thing I, I needed was an idea. And what was I going to do with this newfound desire to create something? It was a matter of trial and error. I had always thought about starting a software company. I tell this story sidebar. My mom was, she's retired now, but she's a hospice nurse. And a lot of my family are, are in the healthcare industry. And everybody has that, that soft spot in their heart that makes them kind of like emotional. And for, for my husband, it's animals. He's very involved with, with animal rescue. But for me, it is aging and the elderly and particularly with loneliness. I started to explore this opportunity to start a company to how do I solve this problem of elderly loneliness? And I, I poked at it and, and I started to build a business plan. And what I just realized was where I was at the time, I didn't have the tools or the ability to, to execute on that. And so I, I continued thinking and I continued 
looking for another opportunity. I was sitting at lunch with my husband and his daughter, who was about to graduate college, and we were talking about what she could potentially do after school. We're sitting in a restaurant. There's a bar right there. We're talking about, well, she's really into craft beer. We started talking about, well, what could you do to target your own demographic for alcohol? We came up with the idea of female-oriented brand that would be lighter beers, maybe ready-to-drinks. This was before the ready-to-drink market really even took off. In researching that business idea, I discovered that there's a concept in wine and spirits, particularly craft spirits, called white labeling or private labeling, where you're able to find a distillery that will do your own custom blend for you and bottle it for you, and then you can create your own brand. And that that was the one, that was the idea that took that spark to a fire. So I had that entrepreneurial desire. Now I had an idea. And now I had this fire burning of, I really want to pursue this. What we then ended up doing was looking a little bit more at the market, understanding what was out there. We were down here in Miami and a friend of mine, his family loves the classic cachaça drink Caprinas. I had never tried cachaça before. He brought it over. I think it was 51 Cachaça, which is kind of a a low tier brand. We made Caprinas that night and I went, how have I never heard of this? I started to do a little bit more research into what is Cachaça. What I learned was it's the third most popular spirits in the world, right behind vodka and and essentially Soshu, which is Korean vodka. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is a, a something that is so global and yet entirely undiscovered to somebody, to, to me, who I like to consider myself a person who's interested in learning about new spirits. That went from, okay, so we have this fire of an idea to start a spirits company or, or a, an alcohol brand to, this is an opportunity. This is the idea that I have the knowledge on, I have the ability And I am confident now that I can move this forward and start to pursue this as a business. And Adeline, so the four steps you said, desire, the idea, is the third one, the fire burning feeling? The third one, and I think this is kind of goes back to COVID, is time. So you've got your entrepreneurial desire, you've got your idea that you need to have, and then you need to have the time to execute on it. And that's really what COVID gave us, being able to work remotely. We all had that flexibility and the ability to take the time to do some discovery and exploration. And that's really where the the at-home tasting of, of learning about cachaça and, and identifying it as a, a spirit that, that I was interested in. And then the fourth one is really overcoming that fear. And I kind of picture this, if you think about a road and you're on the road and that first that first road point on the road is that desire. The second point, you're walking along the road, you come to the idea, and then you find that you have the time to devote to identifying this or, or to stoking that fire, if you will. And then you come to the road and you can see on the far side, you can see the success. You can see the company, you can see the, the, the future, but what's in front of you is a really dark, deep hole. And that is where that fear is. And that is where I think a lot of entrepreneurs, people who have those first three pieces of the entrepreneurship um, spirit come to languish. And that was really the part that took me from to quit my job in January. What you need to overcome that fear you have to have the financial ability to take on the risk of starting a company, or you need to have 
the willingness to forego the time and effort that you would spend on other things to devote to that. So you can continue to work full time and, and take your spare time to starting a company or you can quit your job. And what I was lucky enough to do was be able to quit my job and just dive in headfirst. It's just one of those, you have to have confidence in yourself that you have the skills and the tools that that you need to, to be successful. But then also you need to have people around you who are going to support you. And it is a very scary time in your life where there's uncertainty. Every single day, you're trying to just move that ball forward. And for me, that support system really came in the form of my husband. Because he started his own company, we have a lot of friends who have started their own companies and are entrepreneurs. What you're able to do is verbalize what you're feeling. They're able to say, yes, everything you're going through right now is part of that journey down into that very deep, dark chasm. But what you're going to do is you're going to work your way up out to the other side into that future that you visualize, that success that you can see. He and I were just talking yet last week about this kind of journey. And he said, "Okay, you now have alcohol in bottles. You have a brand. You have a website. You have a a route to market like you're you're climbing Everest and you're you're hiking and you're working so hard and you're exhausted and you get to Everest base camp and you put your pack down and you think you've conquered this mountain. And then everybody looks at you and goes, so when are you going to start hiking? (laughs) So I am now at that point where I'm at Everest Base Camp. I am looking up at this very steep mountain that I need to climb. The best thing that I'm able to do for myself is put those those every day a little bit of more progress and rely on my support system to to guide me and uh, and tell me that I'm still I'm still on the right path. Okay, well, that sounds really interesting. So can you explain a little bit of what cachaça is? I know you said it's a spirit, but I, I think to explain to others that it comes from a specific country. Yes, yes. I mentioned before, a friend brought over a bottle of cachaça. He told us the story about how he discovered it. His parents were actually in Central America somewhere, and it might have been Brazil because cachaça is a Brazilian spirit. They were drinking these drinks. They were very young. They were drinking these drinks. They were having a great time. And Americans obviously have a hard time saying cachaça. So they were, as they continued to drink these drinks, they couldn't remember what they were drinking. So they were, would yell at the bartender, caca, caca. And the bartender kind of knew that that was American for give me another shot of cachaça. Um, <laughs> they go home probably with very little memory of what had happened that night and couldn't remember what this wonderful drink that they had enjoyed on this vacation was until a Brazilian friend reintroduced it to them when they were home in Virginia. And from that point on, my friend and his family would enjoy caprinhas in the summertime. So he brought the bottle over. He taught me about it. It is the national spirit of Brazil, the third most popular spirit in the world. Almost one billion liters of this cachaça are produced every year. It used to be referred to Brazil as Brazilian rum in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a misnomer because when we think of Caribbean rum is distilled from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugarcane production. They harvest the sugarcane and then they they take that sugarcane juice and they, they process it and molasses is a byproduct. And that's what they use to ferment and then distill regular rum when you think of Bacardi. And cachaça is a little bit different. Cachaça, they take that fresh pressed sugarcane juice and they distill it and they ferment it. And what you end up with is something that's a little bit lighter, more refreshing. 
than a, a regular rum. And it almost has a little bit of those qualities like you might find in a tequila. It tends to be more fruity, more kind of vegetal or grassy almost. And what you also find with cachaça is much like um, wine, it can take on the, the characteristics of the environment in which it's created. Whether cachaça is produced near the coastline can have a little bit more salinity to it. If it's up in the mountains or the rainforest, like my cachaça is, it can have more of those foresty and deep rainforest kind of sensations to it. Learning all about cachaça has been really a great part of developing my brand. A key component of what I set out to do with cachaça is educate, bring this culturally significant and much beloved spirit of the Brazilian people to the U.S. Being able to educate and learning all about cachaça just got such a deep history and and a lot for, for people to discover about it. Cachaça, you, you cannot age it, right? You can, actually. And it can be aged in I think it's up to a hundred different types of wood and it, it's, it's very much like a, a bourbon or even a wine in that sense where the, the qualities of, of the spirit take on the characteristics of the material in which it's aged. In the past, Brazilians have aged cachaça in some very rare Amazonian hardwoods and what they do now because of conservation efforts, they don't cut down the trees, create barrels anymore. What they do in some cases, they take on recycled wood and they will use that to create the barrels and, and produce these really lovely cachaças. So what you end up with is something almost, I keep bringing it back to tequila because it's very much like that in you've got the mezcal, you've got um, reposado, anejo, all of the, the various hues in between from very, very clear to these beautiful, deep, dark caramel colors and everything in between. Yes. I have questions to go back. So now you've been in Miami for how long? We are coming up on two years in Miami. Okay. So the honeymoon period has passed. <laughs> yes. We can say that. <laughs> and so, and you've been in Boston all your life. So can you share a bit of the difference between the life in Boston and Miami? I know that you were saying that Miami is, is very energetic. I would like to you to compare it. Absolutely. And I think my experience, my sense of adventure is a really good comparison. So Growing up in New England, in a household that wanted stability, I chose a career path that was very much like that. So in Boston, the careers you see people choose are lawyers, actuaries, accountants. So you end up with a community that is very stalwart in the way that it approaches life. And I think that part of that is you see it in the way that people go through their schooling, they go to college, then they get their first job, they progress through their career, they buy their house. And they go through these things very step by step. And that is a, an area in which I'm very comfortable is the step by step. But what Miami is, every different direction all at once. <laughs> so <laughs> in my personal experience, it is part of the, the Latin influence, especially down here, Central and South American. And then also you have a lot of people who just come here from other parts of the world. You have Europeans. Americans from other parts of, of the U.S., whether it's California or New England or the Midwest, 
there's a general level of acceptance of we take you as you are in Miami that I would say is not as prevalent in Boston. I don't want to speak poorly about about Boston, but I do think there's a certain level of there is an expected way that you do things in Boston. And if you deviate that or you're too out there, then it's a little bit harder place to be versus Miami. You can be anything you want, go wherever you want. You've also got that. I'm living in the middle of spring break right now as a 33-year-old out of college for more than a decade. You just kind of have to, we deal with spring break every single year. But then also it's it's vibrancy and, and excitement and energy that comes with it with spring break. So you take the good with the bad. But And then also the last thing I can say is, is the fashion. Uh-huh. <laughs> what about that? <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. So when my husband and I first moved in together, he looked at my closet and he is very fashionable. He looked at my closet and my closet was very reflective of where I was in my life and physically in New England. It was a lot of dark blue, black, beige. Gray. Um, gray. <laughs> and a little bit of hippie component in there because my mom, my mom's a bit of a hippie. He looked at, through my closet and he said, oh, Oh, we need to we need to work on this. We went through my closet and and put it into he'll gleefully tell you he put it into three piles. Keep, donate, and too ugly to donate. <laughs> <laughs> so and from that, you know, I, I revamped my wardrobe a little bit, but then you come down here and my wardrobe was colorful by Boston standards. I went from the dark blues, blacks and grays, reds and a little bit of maybe greens, but down here it's pink and aqua and yellow and orange and flowing and and lots of those colors. That, I think, also came into the branding that I chose to do with Kashasa because we wanted it to be a very outgoing, bold, unexpected brand. And our tagline is there's there's nothing subtle about Kashasa. Yes, it's beautiful. And the greens are amazing. Yes, I love the website. Yes, company branding color is really this vibrant lime green, which is is a, it's evocative of the the green of the the sugar cane that it comes from, but also the rainforest and then that kind of vibrant lifestyle that you get down here in Miami. And so now if I go to your house and open your closet, how many colors would I see? <gasps> infinite, an infinite number of colors. <laughs> really? Wow. How fascinating. I noticed too that when I was in Venezuela, I used to wear a lot of colors. And now I, I'm here, I try, really to try to avoid black. But sometimes I'm like, oh no, I'm dressing black completely. <laughs> we went back to Boston in September for a weekend. I felt very out of place because I was still kind of wearing muted colors, but I had these really shiny, sparkly rhinestone shoes on. I felt too loud. Like I was way too loud for for Boston and my fashion had already kind of evolved into even when I'm trying to be muted, I'm still very, very vibrant. (laughs) I understand. But, uh, you know, at the end, we have to be us. I always say that color is the language of love. I love that. I love that. So it it must be great to be your friend because we invite you over and then you bring a bottle of cachaça. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you also are good at making cocktails with it? Caipirinhas? I am. I'm I'm a pro caipirinha connoisseur now. But the other thing that I've I've learned with cachaça is that it it can be very much of a chameleon. And so when we created our brand and when I created this blend, we wanted to make sure that it was mixable as well. So we wanted it to be able to be easily swapped in and out. 
for vodka or rum or tequila in any cocktail, we've been able to do some cocktail creations and and explorations, which is is really exciting. What you learn is it becomes very much of a a spark to to take that cocktail of oh it's 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 a margarita, and but then you go and put take the tequila out and you put cachaça in and it becomes, wow, what is this? It becomes unknown and unexpected and it has this just kind of unique, wonderful experience to it. The caprina is the one that everybody knows. In fact, I found talking to people about cachaça and starting this company, a lot of people know caprinas, but they don't know about cachaça. And I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, Tequila was kind of in the same boat where we knew Jose Cuervo, we knew the margarita, but it was very much a you shoot it and it's kind of like gasoline. And I think a lot of the cachaça that has ended up in the U.S. up until this point has fallen that that same way as tequila did, where they are a little bit more industrial and people almost treat it like a here, take a shot of cachaça like they do like grappa, where you see what with somebody who's never had it before, if they can tolerate it. But what you what I want to do is is open everybody up to like tequila, that you've got all of these other expressions and it can really come in this beautiful handcrafted, carefully blended way of, of with a beautiful end product. Yes, I think that I learned about cachaça because we had a party here in, in our house. And so we wanted to make caipirinhas. And so my husband researched and he knew okay, we have to buy the specific cachaça. And that's how I know about it. Otherwise, I wouldn't. So yes, it's a matter of knowing what the ingredients are in in the cocktails. Absolutely. Now, when you go to a bar, it must be really hard for you. You see caipirinhas on the menu, you will be like, oh, can I order one? And you're like, oh, can I talk to the bartender? (laughs) So it's certainly a fun industry to be in. I will say as an actuary, I was not great at dinner parties. You don't want to talk about your career when you're when you're an actuary, but as a craft spirits producer, everybody wants to know and everybody wants to try. And it's it's a much more exciting, interesting industry to be in. What I've discovered about some of the cachaças that are more prevalent down here in, in the Miami market is there's one in particular that is it was made for the U.S. market, but what they really did was they put a lot of sugar in it. Legally, there's actually almost like champagne. There's a lot of legal requirements around cachaça, its alcohol percentage, the amount of sugar that it's allowed to contain, where it's allowed to be produced. There's a, a lot of legal parameters around it. But what this one brand did was in order to to tailor their cachaça for the U.S. market, they put sugar in it. And you can tell when you have a caprina made with this cachaça because it's a little too too sweet almost and you don't have that vibrancy and that bouquet of flavors that you get with something that is allowed to be pure and unfettered by by that extra sweetness. I've also found that the bartenders they have a harder time swapping it in and out of other cocktails because of that sweetness. One bartender in particular said, "I have to put so much lime juice into a caprina." Actually, before I go any further, a caprina, for anybody who doesn't know and is interested in making one at home, you take one whole lime and you quarter it, you muddle it to express all those wonderful juices and oils into the glass. You put two teaspoons, depending on your sugar preference, you can put one or two teaspoons of sugar and muddle that together with the limes and you top it with a shot of cachaça and some ice. And that is a classic perfect caprina. When that one bartender said, I can't swap it in and out too much because it's so sweet. 
And so what you want is a really great cachaça that is allowed to to play off of those lime notes and then also isn't overpowered by that. So during all your moments that you said all those four steps, is there not a time where you really thought, well, this is really a crazy, crazy idea and perhaps some people supported the fact that, yes, who's going to buy it? Why would you think that it will be successful? Yes. And that comes back to that that chasm, that journey that you need to make into that that unknown part of the, the entrepreneurial process. And there are plenty of people in my world that were very uncertain of, of my desire to do this. In fact, even going a, going a little bit further back, when I first had that job at the insurance company, it's one of those places that people go when right out of college and they retire from there. We would have people who we were celebrating 25, 35, 40 years at the company. <laughs> but some people can do that. And I can't, but some people can't. Some people can. And, and I think that also gives you a sense of the kind of people that were my coworkers. And there are people who thrive in that the dependability. I am not that kind of person. I need that vibrancy and that that next step. When I wanted to leave that company and kind of take that first baby step towards that startup world, I had people in my life who said, why would you ever give up that benefit of that great salary, all that stability, all of the benefits, they time off. It's a well-known and well kind of oiled machine. Why would you do that? What I realized is it was, I could always go back to that career. If this next step into, into the startup world didn't work out, I could fall back on that. But then also I had my wonderful partner who was telling me that if it doesn't work out, it'll be okay and it'll be a great adventure and it, you'll learn something else from it. There are people out there who mean well and, and will guide you towards the status quo, but it's it's surrounding yourself with those people who have been on that entrepreneurial journey and are able to guide you through it and tell you everything you're feeling is normal and that it is it's part of the process. I will tell you that I have very many sleepless nights where I'm up at two o'clock in the morning because I, I know that there are all these things I need to do. I haven't done X or Y or Z or I don't have enough Instagram followers or it's going to go out there and nobody's going to like it. But then you get up out of bed at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what I do is, is I'll make a list or I'll, I'll make progress on one little thing. And I think one one way I've really tried to work on overcoming that fear, and it also helps with giving you a little bit of ammunition when you encounter people who might want to put, not want to put, but might unintentionally put doubt in your mind, is I've given myself little tiny goalposts to hit. And so one of them was wine and spirits often get scored, they get medals and you enter competitions. And so one of those was putting our, our spirit into a competition, and I wanted our our first 90 or above score, because the scores are usually out of 100. I said, I want our first 90 plus score, and when we achieve that, I'll put the date in. I want to know the day that we finalize our logo, I'll put the date in there. When we find a supplier that we like and we finalize the product, I'll put that date in there. And so what I did was I put all of these little tiny steps into a list. And every once in a while, I go back in and I put the date in. That's really helped me keep focused on what matters. And then also when I do feel those senses of doubt, 
that I can I can come back and I can look at that list and say, I've really accomplished a lot to get to base camp at Everest. And I have some steps ahead of me to start working on conquering Everest. Did you win a prize? We did. We were able to submit to a, a Spirits Challenge last year and got uh, our, right out our very first entry. Our very first year, we got 90 points. Uh-huh. Who are the judges? They are all very well-seasoned wine and spirits professionals. The competitions come in various shapes and sizes. One of the most well-known one is the San Francisco International Wine and Spirits Competition, which we've just entered, and and we will we'll hear results in the next few months. The one we entered last year was a competition called the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. They are are well known for their judges and for their industry experts and their whole the rigor in their in their judging process. And it's a lovely feeling of validation when these people who have been in the industry for a very long time and know a lot about the brands that are out there have tasted a lot of cachaça, but also across a wide variety of spirits. To have that validation is incredibly rewarding. There are other competitions out there that their panels of judges will be made up of bartenders. They come in all shapes and sizes. Interesting. And what happened when you meet Brazilians and then you say, oh, I am the owner of Cachaça product? How did they take it? Because you are from Boston. <laughs> That's something I, I'm very sensitive to because I tell people I'm, I'm very upfront. I'm not Brazilian. However, what I do consider myself to be is the target demographic for cachaça in the U.S. because I think that it is an entirely unappreciated spirit. I believe that part of the reason it's been underappreciated is because the cachaça brands that have come to the U.S. before have traditionally focused on marketing to the Brazilians that are here in the U.S. and they have their own qualities in spirits that they look for. And what I wanted was to to find a spirit and a blend that was going to be approachable for your average U.S. consumer because cachaças can be almost funky. I kind of compare it to scotch, scotch whiskey. So if you're the kind of person who is really into scotch, you know that they can be very evenly balanced like a, a Macallan or a Japanese whiskey, but then they can also be very peaty or smoky or or deep and complex. That's almost where you you want your palate to end up is with all of those complex flavors and sensations. If you want to introduce an, a friend who's never had scotch before, you want to introduce them to something that's a little bit more approachable. That's my goal with cachaça is give the U.S. consumer a wonderful introductory point that will open this world up to Brazil and and cachaça and the billion liters that are produced every year, 99% stay within Brazil. So my goal is to balance that out a little bit and bring more of the cachaça to the U.S. so that people can appreciate and, and learn more about the wonderful history and the cultural significance of it. So when I talk to people who are Brazilian, They love the fact that I'm really trying to advocate for, for Brazil as, as a country, as a culture, as almost a little bit of an undiscovered market for, for U.S. consumers to, to be aware of. What is the difference between the cachaça that the Brazilians consume and the ones that you're making and the, and the taste? Like, is it less strong? So the Brazilians tend to be very brand loyal. Also, their palates are a little bit more used to some of the funkiness and variability that can come in with cachaça. 
They also tend to be more price sensitive. So most cachaças that you'll find on the market shelf are either in the $15 to $20 range, or they are some really wonderful craft brands that have made it to the US, but they tend to be $45, $50 a bottle. And they are, I will say, they're wonderfully beautiful, smooth cachaças. As a U.S. consumer who might be looking to try cachaça, but not willing to break the bank on what I've tried with cachaça is to hit that that market sweet spot of drinkability, mixability, and also that price point. Great, great. That sounds wonderful. So we let me let me go through again. So we went through your change from Boston to Miami, we you explained to us the four steps that you think that we need to take that leap. You have talked about cachaça. You are obviously a connoisseur. Have you been to Brazil? That's one of the unbelievably unexpected parts of this process because I had this idea in quarantine. Travel wasn't happening. In fact, I think it's just in that kind of reopening period to the credit of the internet and some of the people I've been able to network with. I was able to find a a supplier in Brazil and navigate the complex bureaucracy of the U.S. customs and import process. Also, and start to build that relationship and that partnership with my supplier in Brazil, all from Miami. I'm so looking forward to being able to go to Brazil later this year and visit the distillery where our cachaça is produced and blended. But I haven't had the opportunity to go to Brazil yet. And how do you pick the distillery? That must be hard, No knowing the country. That's a very interesting experience for me because I had no experience in the wine and spirits industry prior to starting this company. So I had to learn everything from the ground up. I learned the legal part of the three-tier system in the U.S., but then I also had to go and learn how to import product into the U.S. from Brazil and what that process looked like. I also set up our product a little bit differently in that all, actually, I think cachaças are bottled and then shipped to the U.S. already bottled. For our company, we imported the cachaça in bulk and it comes to Fort Lauderdale. Then it gets bottled right here locally. The glass is actually produced here in the U.S. What that does is addresses a couple of concerns. One is overall environmental impact of the brand, but then also it allows us to maintain consistency and quality control for the product itself. We're able to test every batch to make sure that it meets our expectations and the expectations of our consumers because wanting to position ourselves as the approachable entry point for cachaças for the U.S. consumer, we want to make sure that every time they pick up a bottle of our cachaça, that it is going to give them a positive experience with that cachaça and with that bottle. And what containers does it come from Brazil? It comes in plastic IBC totes, which was another thing I had to learn all about, how liquid and product is moved around the world. So you can order liquid in various size containers, and then you have to then put those containers into a container to go onto a container ship. We decided that the IBC tote was the right size. We ordered a number of them from our supplier. He blends our special blend at the distillery in Brazil. How long does it take to come from Brazil to Miami? It takes about a month on the boat, but the entire process was a six-month process from when we had the the totes ready to go in Brazil to actually landing in the U.S. for a number of reasons. 
one being the supply chain crisis that happened last year. I was living in the middle of that because containers were very, very expensive and the prices were changing daily. So trying to secure a booking for our totes to get on a ship was a challenge. The cachaça is considered hazmat, dangerous cargo, and it's also flammable. So the shippers didn't want to put our hazardous material on the ships with this valuable export product that was going to the U.S. And so we had to wait a a certain period of time until we could find a ship owner who was willing to put our container on their ship. And then from there, it travels from Rio and Sao Paulo to New York, and then it works its way down the East Coast. Once it's on the ship, it only takes about four weeks, but it was a very long process. Yes. The plastic containers that the cachaça comes from Brazil, can you reuse them? The IBC totes are then reused by local farmers here in South Florida. Most people may not be familiar with kind of the area of South Florida outside of the city of Miami, but when you get a little bit further south into places like Homestead, there are a lot of farms. And the glass bottles are made in Florida or somewhere else? The glass bottles are made in the central part of the U.S. That was another interesting supply chain problem because back in July when we were ordering our bottles, all of the manufacturing plants had been shut down because of COVID or they were working with reduced staff because of various protocols. Things were backordered. My delivery date went from April to July to November. For the longest time, it was living my life in three months. So in three months, we'll have something. In three months, we'll have something. And then it slowly started to all fall into place at the end of last year, where we started to say in one month, in one month, and now we have product in bottles, in boxes, on pallets, ready to go, ready to go out into the world. So in the next few weeks, it will be out on shelves. Oh, all right, right. So in the liquor stores, as well as in bars, mostly in Florida. Yes. We are in the process of getting our storefront set up on our website so people will be able to order directly from the website. The liquor laws in the U.S. are complicated, to say the least, but we'll hopefully be able to ship directly to 37 states in the next six weeks. We'll get our storefront set up and be able to ship directly to people across the U.S. Unfortunately, we won't be able to ship to Canada yet. Only yet. We'll put that on our our six-month plan. All right. All right. Great. Excellent. Adeline, congratulations on this new adventure. Thank you so much for being here. It was lovely to learn about Cachaça and about you and your leap and your four points of helping us to, if anybody can want to do it and is as brave as you are. Oh, Daniela, thank you so much for hosting me. I really love chatting with you. I'm so honored. Thank you. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed it today's episode. I am Daniela and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.